Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele, and currently still less on time. In this episode, our friend Peter has released his third book, Guile Brews, inspired by Proustian memories of the beers of his Cornish youth. And in the book, he traces the history of Guile Brewing, the ultimate way to make a bunch of beers at once. And it's not just separating mash runoffs like we usually talk about. So sit back and prepare to get crafty. But first, a message from our sponsors. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, the lost art of farmhouse brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at brewerspublications.com. Unfortunately, uh, being a home brewer in these times has uh, come in handy. Uh, yeah, I, I've uh, been brewing quite regularly, and uh, I see from Facebook, so have you. I'm actually amazed at the number of home brewers I've been hearing from who are like, you know, I, I haven't been brewing. I've kind of given up on the hobby and whatnot, and now now I'm brewing again. Even my uh, local homebrew shop, they've, you know, they've been doing like a lot of retailers have been where they've been having real issues recently. My two local shops that, that I routinely interact with are both hopping now. They're just, they're staying busy. Yeah, the uh, my local homebrew shop, um, they've always done a lot of mail order. Mm-hmm. And usually the guys from the brew club, 
you know, you, you get inside running on, on what malts are coming in and whatever. And it was, well, what have you got? He said, well, we haven't actually got a lot left. You'll have to wait. Uh, so I, I did I did score a sack of Golden Promise, so that was all right. In fact, after I'm done here, I'm going to go back out to the brewery and I'm going to set up to make a uh, cream ale just so I can uh, have something nice and lager-like. Yeah, I've got a um, uh, a 19... Uh, 16 Tooth's uh, White Horse Pale Ale. Uh, that's got flaked, flaked maize in, so you'd call that corn, I guess. Uh, and that's fermenting at the moment because I wanted a, you know, a 45 4.7%, just a nice flavoursome beer. I've got a lot of other stuff, but I, I just wanted a, a quaffer, really. Well, I think that's important in these times. So I think uh, life is good, but you have a new book. I do. Peter, why don't you tell the the folks out there about your new book? Yes, I have a new book. It's called Gal Brews, and it's um, got 82 odd recipes. And by odd, I mean very distinctive uh, recipes from uh, Ireland, England, and Cornwall. And it's covering uh, what periods? The 1900s? Uh, go from the middle of uh, the 19th century right the way through into the 20th century where my drinking began what seems to me a relatively short period ago but was probably 50 years ago so yeah let's talk about that because the, you you have a whole story behind what inspired this right You're trying to get back to youth i'd always been quite fond of a beer it started when i played rugby with newkey hornets as as the lad of about 16 or 17 ish I would be given a half of beer every now and again, which may or may not have been in line with licensing laws. But in doing that, uh, it, it gave me an appreciation of, of beers. And uh, and the beers in in Cornwall at that time weren't particularly uh, flavoursome. Uh, we're talking about the era of uh, keg beers, like Double Diamond, Whitbread Tankard, the infamous Red Barrel, uh, from Watney's, uh, all of those things were were what you got down the pub. It was it was rare to actually uh, see a cask beer. Not that probably at that age I would have really appreciated what that meant. I was keen to try and recreate some of the beers from that period, given my newfound um, like of uh, history and 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 the brewing processes that go with it. And over a number of years, I've been back to Cornwall probably every 18 months or so since the mid-90s, because uh, now I live in Australia. So I regard myself as a Cornish Australian, which is, uh, I think, the, the right way to be. I went to uh, the uh, Cornwall Record Office contacted them via email beforehand because I'd found they had some information from the Redruth Brewery. And the Redruth Brewery was known as the Devonish Brewery and had a fairly checkered career. After about two attempts, I actually got to view uh, production records from the 1970s. So I was able then to uh, locate what was probably the mild ale that I used to drink at the pub on Friday because I couldn't afford to drink every day of the week. So Friday, lunchtime, get my pasty, have my pint, 
and I drank Devonish Mild, and I had very, and still do, very fond memories of Devonish Mild. It was a, a much, much more flavoursome beer to my mind than the uh, St. Austell Brewery equivalent. I was then quite surprised when I looked at what was actually in it, and most of its flavouring constituents were black invert sugar and caramel. Um, malt was um, – there was malt in it, but it it was a 3, 3% beer. So it's a, a, a true session beer. You can have a pint and go back to college and still be paying vague attention in the afternoon. So that set me off uh, even more to try and hunt down more uh, Cornish beers. And uh, the St. Austell Brewery uh, – the Redruth Brewery no longer is – in existence, it's been transmogrified into the uh, Crescent Kernow, which is the uh, archive centre for all things Cornish. So they refurbished the old buildings with lottery money. And I was hopeful that at some stage I'd get back to have a look and see what they'd done. But given the present circumstances, uh, I'm not quite sure where that might be. So another trip. Uh, and I went to the St. Austell Brewery, and I've always been um, uh, keen on St. Austell beers, just perhaps not their mild, and uh, spoke to their archivist, and they were updating their visitor centre, and he kindly let me have a rummage in in their archive. Now, this is a, a private company, so it's not a publicly accessible archive. So it took two trips to actually harvest what I uh, what I felt I needed and that gave gave a different perspective because the the other beer that um, was very partial to is called Hicks special draft and Hicks was the uh, name of the founder of the company before it turned into a the St Austell brewery by name Hicks special draft in 1975 was a 5%, I think, I, to give people a style range, it's probably ESB-ish. It was a ve- given that most of the beers were 3 3.2%, and even the keg beers wouldn't have been much more than 4 at, at the best, probably nearer 3.8 ABV. They had the Hicks uh, Special Draft at 5%. Now, this was, this was a beer in, the, in Newquay where I lived, uh, you'd go go to the Vic Bars, and the Vic Bars, again, is another institution that no longer exists, which is probably just as well because it was uh, very much on the rough end of things. It was even a bit risky going there at lunchtime for a beer. But they did have Hicks Special Draft, and you could you could pop in for a half, but they were very cunning. They didn't actually have it on a pump clip that you could see. It was hidden behind the uh, lifeboat donation, which is a little uh, a, a little lifeboat that you put put your loose change in, and it rolls down the slope as if you're launching a lifeboat into the collection box. And behind it was the was the pump. And Hicks Special Draft uh, to this day is one of my favourite beers, and uh, I've managed to locate uh, the grist. And the St. Austell Brewery, like the Redruth Brewery, party guiled. They guiled everything. So there were 
examples of high gravity brewing and then liquored down. They were they were doing the what most people would recognise as uh, take the first runnings as a big beer and the second runnings as a smaller beer. However, they also did permutations so that the the blending of the first copper, which had generally the stronger word, but not necessarily because they added sugars uh, to both both of the coppers. So you ended up with a a fairly unique mixture where they they blended across the beer. So there would be a, a different percentages of copper one, copper two to make up beer one. They would then add in because this was mostly what we would call today higher higher gravity brewing, they would they would then liquor that down with some hops barge uh, to get the required gravity. And then they would either uh, use the residual to make a three percent beer, or again they would they would do a permutation on that, and it also would have copper one, copper two, and perhaps a lot more sparge, hop sparge or uh, liquor added to make a much bigger brew length. So these breweries were quite you'd regard them as quite small today. And this would have enabled them to have a, a, a fairly decent product range for a limited capacity by using sugars. I think actually this is a, a good point. We should make sure that we understand what is guile brewing, since that is the the heart and soul of the book. Well, guile is a name for a batch of beer, and the oldest style uh, of um, spelling of guile is G U I L E. And if you look that up in the dictionary definition, that also means crafty, as in crafty or sly or that type of crafty. The more modern spelling is G-Y-L-E. And again, it has the same meaning. It's a, it's a batch of beer, fundamentally. And throughout the, the books, the production records that I've seen, guile is there pretty much on every page, top left, guile number so-and-so. So it did seem to me that, that the the guile was an appropriate term to capture all the different permutations of the way the breweries that I've selected use guiling as a process. The party guiling is to take a guile, a complete batch, and then make multiple beers. But perhaps not in the... Uh, Randy Mosher's uh, Brewing Techniques article, which is the one that's often quoted as being all malt, it's much more complicated because each each brewery had their own method of of, of party guiling. Uh, I, I use Fuller's as the the current classic example because arguably it's the uh, only modern brewery that's actually party guiling on a regular basis. And it's also the reason why it's really hard to clone their beers. Yeah, because it's the the combination of it. It's it's non-trivial. Once you get into ag- adding different amounts of sugar and hops to each of the coppers, you're then getting a unique blend within each copper, and then you're mixing it all up again, literally in the way you apply those blends to produce the beers into the fermenters. All of the, all of the brewing records that I've seen have done uh, the, 
into the fermenter. They blended into the fermenters. They haven't they haven't particularly done a different approach. Uh, Whitbread uh, would would actually ferment both of their beers separately and then add them together at racking. So, I mean, the way I've always thought of Partigal is, I mean, you mentioned Randy before, and the way he he describes it has always been the way that I thought about it, which was, oh, you take different mash runnings and blend those together to be different beers. But it seems like you're talking that, by the records, what everybody was actually doing was it was a full-on different runnings into different kettles with different sugars, different hops, boiled, and then the boiled wort was then blended together. And then possibly also fermented beers, but uh, we know people do that still anyway. So uh, to me, I think that was one interesting takeaway was, oh, it's it's a totally different technique. Yeah, the the um, so you you have two ends of the spectrum. You you have the seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds, multiple mashes, multiple beers on a very much a one to one basis. Uh, you get into um, the late eighteen hundreds onwards and from the records that i've seen they all did similar but different uh, approaches and they'd combine them into the fermenters and blend and i i researched the textbooks of the day and there were numerous methods of calculation to actually calculate for a given set of beers that you needed to produce what you would need as your your base materials and then there was the the question of of how you would hop each of those two coppers. So I should have mentioned that copper is the term that's used pretty much throughout the books. Copper equals kettle. Kettle equals copper. It's just that most most kettles were copper, so they're called coppers. If that's clear enough. So copper one and copper two, they then get different. When you when you put them together in the blends, not only do you have to consider, you know, the flavour impacts of all of that. Although I suspect some of that may have been incidental. What happens with the the gravities will be different. The colours will be different, especially when you start adding liquor or hop sparge, which is uh, going to reduce the colour of of each beer. Importantly, the bitterness ratios are going to be affected by the blending. So dependent on what you have in your copper for your hopping rate for copper one and copper two, when you come to blend them, you'll get a different mixture of of hopping and therefore bitterness. Now, some of these things may well account for the huge amount of caramel that was added at racking or during earlier in the process in some cases. I think they needed to even out the process so that what the what the customer got to see was a, a beer of reasonably uniform um, colour so they knew they were getting the same one as they had the last time. I was just thinking, I mean, this is such a, a next-level addition of things that can possibly go wrong in brewing that, yeah, it makes perfect sense that they would have techniques on the other side to sort of smooth out any aberrations. When you're brewing... Uh, some of the examples there, they were brewing an AK and a pale ale and possibly a special pale ale. And and you look at when you plug it into the software, and I will pick up on uh, something from your most recent podcast about ProMash. Until six months ago, I was a ProMash user. 
all all the all the recipes in the book were developed using Promash. However, it, because of its lack of support and all the rest of it, I've um, moved over to Brewfather now, and I validated all the recipes in Brewfather, which I found to be uh, a very well supported product. Anyway, enough of that plug. Plugging those recipes in with the modern uh, ingredients to get as close to uh, the percentage of the ingredients of the past. And then you look at the way the color is calculated. Without adding any caramel, there would have been hardly any product differentiation. And, and perhaps color equals strength. You know, that's in the perception of things. So you can see they added different amounts of caramel, perhaps to make the special pale ale a bit darker than the AK. There's not a lot of romance to all this. These these guys are producing beer to be sold down the pub. They're, they're I think I think everybody gets a bit hung up with the um, mystique of the whole thing. But when you've been through the production records, um, yeah, they were churning it out. Well, it, I, I wanted to back up and ask a real quick question because you you used a couple of times the term hop sparge. I think what is a hop sparge? Is it just simple as hops and water? Well, in in the period we're talking about. Probably not until the late 70s do you stop, start getting the use of, uh, of pellets and, in some cases, hop extract. Uh, they did use hop extract during World War II, and I've seen references to that, but I think that was uh, untypical. Uh, they were using whole hops, whole hops, seeded whole hops, and the, the, the classic way of... Um, uh, straining the hops after the end of the boil was to use a hop back, uh, sometimes called a hop jack. Uh, but a hop back is basically another filtering mechanism to filter out the hops before uh, you send the beer uh, off to the um, coolers and the um, and the fermentation vessels. Yeah, and in a lot of American craft breweries, you can see they'll have hop backs. That, I mean, they almost look like. It's a, a small kettle with a, a filter bottom. Yeah, the filter bottom is very similar to a mash tun. Uh, Gunmetal plate. On my on my website, I've got a, I think I've got a picture of uh, the Caledonian Brewery up in Edinburgh. That was when you could go and well, again, I I, I scanned my way into that one, which and I was very grateful to having a individualized tour, but I also got to see. Uh, the hop back from a distance of, in American speak, I was only about two foot away from it, and it was just a huge uh, square vessel full of hops just bobbing up and down as they were straining from the uh, from the copper. One thing that that I have picked up on in some of the records, they did actually add additional hops to the hop back. So the way I've interpreted that into the recipe is that that's in effect a hop stand. So we're dealing with with some of these breweries of quite a reasonable size. So the the hop back is probably uh, I wouldn't like to say how many barrels, but it, it's going to be holding a fair amount of barrelage, and it's going to take time to to strain out. So by adding hops to the hop back, you would in effect get a hop stand proving once again that there is nothing new in brewing. Let's talk a couple of the other things, because as you said, looking through these archives can sometimes bust the romanticism that we have about all this. 
And I think one of the things, at least from an American perspective, you know, when we talk about, you know, good craft beer, we have that perception of it being all malt, right? And, and using sugars and other things is, well, that's cheating and, and making bad quality beer. But it seems very clear from reading through the book and the different recipes that, I mean, there is sugar everywhere in these adjuncts everywhere. Can you, can you talk about, uh, I mean, you talked a little bit about Brewer's Caramel, but the, I think the one that we never see over here in the States is, and I know some people consider it to be absolutely critical to the taste of British beers, is Brewer's Invert Syrups. In part of the book, I, I was very intrigued by sugars because in the, in the historical um, logs, you, you see lots of references to manuf- the manufacturer of the sugar or the source of the sugar. So it's a bit, it's a bit like hops, where the, the hops typically didn't have uh, a variety listed in, in the record. It was by grower or by factor or by area. And you were lucky to get an area because if you got an area, then you might be able to say, ah, oh, that's probably Fuggle or it might be East Kent Goldings. Highly probable it's going to be Fuggles or Goldings for the, the vast majority of the recipes. When you get into the sugars, you'd get number one, number two, number three. Possibly it just says invert. So I took the opportunity uh, when I was in London a few years ago to go to um, – uh, where was it? Shepherd's Bush, I think, and and go to the archive there, and and they had the uh, Manbray. Now, if if you're at all into historical brewing, etc., Manbray should be a name. Manbray and Garten should be a name that flags up some interest. And I went through their limited archives that they had. Uh, most of the most of the archives of of defunct companies are business records and the production side is usually fairly scanty and that includes the brewing records but they did they did have some history of the brewery and uh, of, of the manufacture of the sugars uh, and i also went to uh, stratford upon avon uh, to look in the flowers archive and they also had uh, kendall's and kendall's was a manufacturer of um, proprietary sugars usually uh, various forms of glucose. So between those two archives, I found some of the notebooks of the original mixes of what went into some of these sugars. So I thought this was quite interesting. Others may not, but I did spend a bit of time delving into it. So invert number one, two, and three, the differences between that, they are inverted sugars normally converted with sulfuric acid and then neutralized important to be neutralized primarily to uh, uh, as an aid to the to the yeast health bear in mind that the 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 breweries that i've got in the book are all repitching batch to batch uh, when they when their yeast got really bad they'd get some from somewhere from another brewery and that that occasionally was written in red where they got it from. But yeast health to them was very important because um, a poorly performing yeast would would lead to off flavors, etc. The good thing about invert is that invert takes the stress off the yeast. So the, the yeast in itself can convert 
into the simple sugars for fermentation, but it takes a bit longer and it obviously stresses the yeast. So by inverting the sugar, it, it's good for yeast health. So that that's the production side of things. From the flavor perspective, the the base material that they were using to invert was raw sugar and probably not the raw sugar of today, which is white sugar with a bit of color added back in. It was much more like the, uh, I think it would be Demerara, would be a better analogy in um, in the US. So it's it's a sugar that inherently has molasses in it. It's not as refined as white sugar. So that molasses flavor is the flavor that that carries through into the beer and gives the beer a very unique uh, flavor as far as I'm concerned. The... Uh, uh, the guys at the brew club are um, are now getting highly suspicious when I when I proffer them a beer and they taste it and they look at me and they go, "Have you put invert in this?" Because they they're starting to be able to pick that it's it's some slight molassesy flavour. When you get to number four, which is the darker invert or black invert, that's got a lot of molasses in it. So I have gone with the uh, Unholy Mess website. If you uh, Google that, you'll find how to, how I make invert. I am I've had some of the guys at the club who've uh, demoed some of the recipes for me have used Belgian candy sugar, and yes, it's probably got the right colour, but I'm I'm not convinced uh, using beet sugar on its own without some molasses is going to get you uh, the right flavor. Do I really know whether the beers tasted like that way back then? No, I don't. But I think if you look at all the process details that you've got, other than other than yeast health, you will get a darkening and you will get a flavor impact from the use of um, particularly invert number two and number three. So that's an important component to um, put into your uh, recreation recipe and taste it for yourself and see what you think. Well, and we've talked on the podcast before about the unholy mess uh, process because, I mean, they walk you through how to make it properly with time and stirring and controlled heat and don't let anything scorch. But then I think the, the second process that I think is the one that you're referencing is the one of taking essentially a clear invert and adding small portions of molasses to it, of, of a blackstrap molasses, right? To get the right color and, and the right flavor impact. Yeah, I, I've, I've made, I made it both ways. And the first method is um, pain. I have made base, um, um, base sugar syrup, uh, using uh, lactic acid, and um, we have a thermomix. Now, a thermomix is a very expensive kitchen device for those that know about thermomixes, and I regard making invert in it as some sort of um, return on investment, as far as I'm concerned. And what it does have, it'll it gets you in the right temperature range, uh, and it's got a stirring mechanism, which is great. So I, I have made the base the base um, sugar syrup. Uh, the cheats way is you go and buy Lyle's golden syrup, and then you need to get a good tasting molasses or blackstrap, as it's sometimes called. Uh, some of the 
methods that they use to make the the molasses you've got to take a punt sometimes and you go to the supermarket and you you get get a jar of molasses get it home put your finger in it and if it tastes rough and a uh, bit tart and acidic or it's got any sort of off flavors well that's for cooking try again get get one that you could dip your finger in and and run that over your taste buds and if it tastes good that's the one to use well and i'm trying to think here in the u.s we we rarely see lyle's golden uh, and i know the temptation would be to go use uh, liquid corn syrup uh, but that's uh, that's going to be a different flavor uh, I guess because I've never I've never tasted it, but um, problem is most most of our corn syrups have uh, salt and uh, usually vanilla in them, so no good. I mean, doing doing the the base invert is not it's not terribly hard, uh, as you said. It's a little tedious if you're just doing the base invert. That's not really too bad, you know, because you're not having to to keep stirring a pot for hours, you know. So, I mean, I highly recommend people give it a shot at least once. Yeah, it, it, it's a bit like um, when you're doing um, – uh, I was just trying to translate it. Uh, we'd call it maize. So it, if you're using polenta, polenta is like boiling lava when you try converting that on the stove and with a little bit of malt in there to help it convert. It's a bit like that. It's one of the things you do once and you go, hmm, that's interesting. Right. Flake maize. <laughs> exactly. There's that, and as you said, I mean, a lot of these processes that are being they're being documented for these breweries. It was all about being able to extend capacity and be able to extend the amount of beer being made. Why should I, as a home brewer, do party valve? It's a it's a bit like triple decoction mashing, and, we have, and listeners know my opinions on on decoction. So yeah, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things. Um, that I think you should try once. Uh, I, I've done a few now because I needed to make sure I understood how it worked. Uh, I found it particularly good uh, with with the stouts that I've done from the Murphys because I went to uh, Cork to specifically look in the Murphys archives and they used a, a two copper system and then blended to produce let's say a uh, an xx stout and and a porter of different gravities and and that was um that both of those beers came out really well i should always it's it's important to recognize that there's quite a long period of time covered in the book and different eras had had different phases and fads of of using things so it's very, very difficult to generalize. However, I think if you if you needed to provide a large amount of beer for, let's say, a, you know, more than normal consumption, say you had a wedding or a party or something to do, and you wanted to produce a couple of beers, I think one of the particle techniques from the book to produce a a quaffing three percenter pale ale and a different flavored four and a half percent pale ale, special pale ale, say, you would get two different beers for only a marginally longer brew day, providing you've got the fermentation capacity. That is the, the, the thing that really 
is is the downside is it's easy enough to produce two coppers full of wort, easy enough to blend, but you do need to have the fermentation capacity to ferment both beers. I have used no-chill to do my blends, which has effectively uh, time-phased my uh, fermentation capacity. So I'll, I'll blend into the cubes, which is a high... Uh, risk, high reward, slightly slightly edgy process with boiling wort into um, uh, into the cubes. But I think once you've once you've done that once and you and you know what your process is going to produce in terms of gravities, then you can put say forty percent into into one cube and sixty percent into the next cube of of copper one and then top up with copper two because you'll know what your gravities are going to be. And then you'd have two cubes and then you could then f- ferment them at your leisure. And I'm talking 20 litre cubes. So other than that, I, it's just the, it, it's, it's just the, I'm just fascinated by the whole thing. It It isn't simplistic like capping the wort and, you know, making a totally different second beer. Most of the beers that, that are in the book are, a permutation on a theme. It's a strong start and it's a less strong start. It's a it's a it's a weaker pale ale or it's a stronger pale ale. And then of course there are the classics. There's a really decent strong ale, and then a lot of um, quaffing pale ale. So you you've got a whole range of things in there to choose from. And that's something I think is interesting. Every time you look at these like tables, either the tables that you have or like Ron has on his blog and, and you see like, and yeah, it's the whole range that they're producing out of these very onesie twosie type mash situations that they're doing. It's amazing because yeah, the, the differences sometimes you're like, really, those are two different beers. But then again, I mean, we're now in a world where everybody's making the same IPA. It's just now a different blend of hops. Yeah. Oh, don't start me on that. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to do a Denny impersonation on you. Don't worry. We get enough of Denny on this channel. Knowing that, I mean, knowing that you've gone through this and, and looking at this process, I mean, is there any flavor that you that you can think, other than talking about the stuff we, we talked about with the invert, is there any unique sort of flavor attribute that you get out of guiled brews than you do out of how everybody's doing it these days with a single mash to a single beer? Um, no, I don't, I don't really think so, but my sample size is, is, is not huge because I've, um, uh, I've selectively chosen beers to put in the book. I haven't put in everything that I had because in a lot of instances, they went 20 or 30 years. They didn't change the recipe or uh, unless they were forced to by government action or something. I, I, I think the other flavor impact, which we just briefly mentioned, was adjuncts. And by adjuncts, I mean raw barley, rice. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, maize and corn and rye. So in World War Two, World War One, in the UK, uh, the government went, totally off the planet and put a huge amount of restriction on the what the brewers could brew and the gravities dropped and plummeted and they didn't repeat 
the mistakes of World War One and World War Two, they decided that that beer was good for morale, which of course we all know that's true. Uh, given our current circumstances and everybody brewing up a storm, so in World War in World War Two, it was much more about material supply, and the way it worked out there was they had an advisory board to the food ministry, and instead of and instead of issuing regulations, it was all done cooperatively, which meant that the the equivalent of the Brewers Association in the UK would suggest to its members that this would be a good idea to use oats or raw barley. So we do, do see in the Sonostal Brewery records in particular – it, they were a small enough brewery that they didn't have stocks uh, of uh, malt and they didn't have their own maltings. Most most of the breweries in the book had their own maltings. So they they were very dependent on, on what they could get. So in, I think it was 1942, 43, you can see the change where they're still making – they only made one beer for the entire of World War Two. Pale Ale. It's a 1030-something beer, perhaps 1030.5. And you can see how they changed. Uh, they were, for, well, forced in effect. So I got uh, uh, Barry Cranston, my good mate and a much better brewer than I. Uh, he brewed um, one of these, and it had a mix of adjuncts, uh, add some oats, uh, some rye, and some flake barley and for a such a small beer had a very nice flavor profile uh, when you're brewing one of these 1030 beers it's a bit like us light lager there is nothing to hide behind if you make a mistake in your process because the faults just come straight through and conversely the the use of adjuncts you can you can get uh, more mouthfeel out of such a, a low gravity beer by selectively using adjuncts. So I I think that's that's another area for exploration is to is to um, brew a low gravity beer and and play around with the mix of um, of adjuncts. Very cool, yeah, and trying to understand their their impacts. And of course, this is also where Denny makes fun of the fact that I use oats in everything. Uh, my my brain is not uh, very Reinhardt's kaboot compliant. Well, um, I I just wonder how uh, how much of uh, the Reinhardt's kaboot is honoured in the breach, uh, actually. But never mind. I can't I can't read I can't read German so I don't I wouldn't have any access to German brewing records but I suspect it's there's a fair degree of mythology around that one. Oh yeah, I I I suspect you're right. So industry is always going to find a way to do as much as they can in order to make things cheaper and faster. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. Before we leave, is there anything else that you want to make sure people know about the 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 book and the things that you've discovered? about Galbering and about the spirit time. And actually, did you ever recreate your the beer that kind of initially drove you to this? Yes, yes. Uh, I did recreate the beer. I've, I've had four goes at it. 
over the years and uh, I'm still not quite sure I've it's such a long time ago when I drank it and uh, having having some sort of memory of a slightly roasty but very flavoursome uh, beer when I was having my pasty that that's what I've tried to carry carry through I it's possible I haven't quite got the black invert quite right because it, it it doesn't quite come through and so I I think I'm I'll do another permutation of that one you, and and that's the great thing about homebrewing uh, you, you you can um you can develop things a little bit at a time so but I I do hope that um people would would give it a try it's not it's not just my beers I had uh, when I was younger I've also tried to look at um, – we didn't talk about Banks with Mildale and we didn't really talk about um, uh, Murphy's and we didn't talk about IPA, over 100 years of IPA uh, from uh, the Flowers Brewery. So there's there's, there's hopefully something for everybody in the book. So um, it's available as a print-on-demand and uh, I'll give you the link to put in the um, – in the notes yeah and if if nothing else folks you can go to lulu.com that's l-u-l-u.com and you can search for peter's name and what i saw when i looked earlier today was both uh bronze brews and uh guile brews is now available for printing Uh, and six o'clock brews they seem to have upgraded their website and um and dropped um six o'clock brews off for some reason so as it's Sunday in the States at the moment, uh, I'll email them tomorrow to find out what's going on. Where's my book? Well, and I, I've, I will say I've been having great fun going through and, you know, using using the various things that you've discovered in here to sort of inspire changes to, to the things I'm doing or give me inspirations for flavors. Uh, I definitely want to dig more into the invert syrups because that is an area where I haven't played around a lot. And, and so, again, it's, as you said, there's nothing new in brewing. Right, things are things that have been done in the past are being done now, and the things that we've done have been done in the past. So it's good to be able to see these things and get something, even if you're not going to go out there and recreate a mild from 1950s or that that giant span of flowers IPAs. It's good to be able to look through that and and draw inspiration from it. I will say I appreciate the research that you guys put into this uh, and all that time. I know the last time we talked. You were talking that the uh, uh, the archives are not always a pretty place to go <laughs> at these breweries. No, <laughs> but actually, getting access to them is um, uh, the ones that are in public archives aren't too bad. Uh, you, you've got a known a known amount of mold to deal with. Uh, however, if you're in a production brewery, and I've been in several, and their archives are not necessarily kept in uh, ideal conditions, so we say. But yeah, uh, I still um, uh, I still think there's because knowledge is lost across each generation to revisit, uh, along with the stuff that Ron's done as well. It, it, I, I tried very hard not to uh, duplicate uh, what Ron uh, had done. But I was very interested in the areas that that I grew up in, so I, that that really was my base. I I just think it's if you're interested in brewing and technique, 
with a focus on recipe, then it's the book for you. Available now, print on demand. It will be shipped to you. Uh, is Guile Brews. And like I said, uh, lulu.com. You can search for Peter's name. We'll make sure to have a link in the show notes. And uh, Peter, thank you so much. I'm wondering where you're going to go to next in order to to draw more inspiration. As as a closing, as a final, final closing note, yes, I'm um, I'm trying to get more information from Australia because I feel that there's a few holes in in what I've um, uh, put together so far, and I have gathered some information, and I've tried very hard to find information in Brisbane and Melbourne, and not had too much success. But I think uh, there'll be another one along in a couple of years. It's funny how that happens. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of guile brewing and what it actually means to be crafty in your beer. Uh, just how do you think you're going to use guile brewing? Do you want to just stick to the separating mash runoffs, or do you want to actually try and make multiple lines of beers all from, well, one mash session? Let us know. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And, of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BY links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is not one more vet, an organization dedicated to helping ensure the mental health of those who ensure the health of our pets. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org.